I hope you enjoyed the uh, cold weather this past week. I think the rest of the nation must be amused at the way we Texans handle cold weather. We don't even have to see snow. We just have to hear that it might snow, and we shut down. We close schools. We don't go to work. And I'm sure it gets them a little tickled, but I don't care where you live. Cold, miserable weather is hard to handle. Maybe you heard the story about the kindergarten teacher, and it was up north, and it was a blustery winter, and there was lots of snow and cold weather. And it was obvious one of her little five-year-old boys was having a terrible time getting his boots on. And so she offered to help, and she didn't anticipate how hard it was going to be. And she pulled and he pushed, and I mean, she literally broke into a sweat, finally getting those boots on when he announced they're on the wrong feet. (laughs) And so she tried her best to keep her cool, and she pulled them off, and with much effort, she managed to get them on the right feet this time, only to hear him say, these aren't my boots. That was all she could do to keep from screaming, why didn't you say so when she pulled them off only to hear him say, these are my brother's boots. My mama made me wear them. (laughs) At this point, she doesn't know whether to laugh or to cry. She strains and gets those boots finally on one more time and then says to the little boy, now, where are your mittens? And he said, I stuck them inside the boots. You see, life gets hard when we get things out of order. Now, that's why we're beginning the new year with this study titled First, because we want to spend a few weeks just examining what the Bible says about this whole notion of what or who goes first. And so, if you'll remember last week, we said Christ is first. And we talked about Colossians 1, that he is fully God and God is fully in him. He is all Lord and he's Lord of all. He is sovereign over creation, over the church, even over death. And we said most of us don't struggle with giving Christ no place in our lives. Our struggle is giving Christ second place. Like the Olympic stand. We want Christ to meddle. We want Christ to be publicly acknowledged. But we want to save the first place for ourselves. Now there is a word in the Bible for this. And the word is idolatry. Idolatry is the sin mentioned more and condemned more in the Bible than any other because God knows that all of us struggle with an idolatrous heart. Now you're thinking, wait a second, I don't kneel before stone statues and offer prayers. But in the Bible, idolatry is deeper than that. That idolatry is at the root of all sin. Because I want to give you this definition of sin today that might be a little different. That sin is first allegiance to secondary things. Now this opens up a whole new way of thinking about sin. Because it's easy to say sin is just when I do real bad, nasty, dark, ugly things. And as long as I'm not doing nasty, bad, dark, ugly things and going to church, I don't have a sin problem. 
But the Bible says sin goes deeper than that. Sin is any time in my life I give primary allegiance to what God created as a secondary affection. And so, you see, sin could be I have an addiction to beer. But sin could be I have an addiction to my career. Anytime I put anything in this place where only God belongs, I am dealing with an idolatrous heart. Sin's allowing any other call or agenda to supersede God's. And so, it's not just enough for us to stop where we did last week and say, Christ is first. We know that. The real challenge now is to make those daily decisions to put Christ first. And that's not easy because of something much of contemporary Christianity has lost. In the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 9, verse 51, there's a significant transition. That verse says, At that time, as it approached the time for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And that verse begins a section of about ten chapters that scholars call the travel narrative. Six other times, Luke is going to say, he's heading to Jerusalem. The time was approaching, and we know what Luke means. He's not saying that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for his coronation. Jesus is going to Jerusalem for his crucifixion, and he knows it. So this section of the Gospel of Luke, we are intended to read as spoken by someone who knows he's about to die. Jesus knows he's going to Jerusalem to die. And he invites us to come with him. And he is going to say some of the most startling and disturbing things he ever said. For example, just a few verses later. Now remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die. And so, verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, notice, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Wow. Where did that Jesus come from? Did you know that Jesus was in the Bible? Has he never read how to win friends and influence people? You see, Jesus never had a problem drawing crowds. Who wouldn't want to hang out with a guy that heals the sick and gives out free food? But he's not interested in attracting spectators. 
He's trying to gather recruits. He's heading to Jerusalem to pay the ultimate price. And he's asking people to come with him. And the invitation's available to anybody, but the terms are applicable to everybody. Follow me. And that is what I think we've lost. The call to follow Jesus. Notice I capitalized the word follow for a reason. I don't think our problem is with the second part of the command. Follow me. We got the me down. Most evangelical churches are good at preaching Jesus. We tell people it's not Muhammad. It's not Buddha. It's Jesus. And we're good at preaching me. What we're not good at preaching is follow. We kept the person, but we lost the path. We, we kept the man, and we lost the mission. We kept Jesus, but we lost go to Jerusalem. And what we're offering our world is Christianity without conversion. You don't have to follow Jesus anymore. You just need to accept Him. You hear it every day. You just need to accept Jesus as your personal Savior. Which, by the way, He never said. See, the nice thing about just accepting Jesus is I don't have to put Him here. I just have to intellectually agree with the fact that He is who He said He is. And I can pretty much keep my life the way it was before I accepted Him. And we do it all under the banner of what we call grace. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right in his classic book, The Cost of Discipleship. It's cheap grace. He wrote before he was murdered by the Nazis these classic words. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We're fighting today for costly grace. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. And it's under the influence of this kind of grace. The world has been made Christian. But at the cost of secularizing the Christian religion as never before. The Christian life comes to mean nothing more than living in the world as the world. And being no different from the world for the sake of of grace. The upshot of it all is my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday morning and go to church to be assured my sins are all forgiven. I no longer need to try to follow Christ because cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, has freed me from that. He concludes, we must attempt to recover A true understanding of the mutual relation between grace and discipleship. And I would say to you, in my almost 30 years of preaching, it is the single hardest struggle to try to explain. That Jesus will take anybody where they are. But he will never tell anybody they can stay there. And so, today... 
in most churches, instead of offering people a path toward Jerusalem, a life of carrying a cross, we offer people happiness. And the result is we've got churches full of people who give Jesus a place, but not this place. We come to Jesus on our terms. But Jesus says, you must come on mine. I think there is a reason that Jesus said the first ordinance you must obey to enter into my movement is baptism. First thing you must do is totally die. You see, putting Christ first begins with that. I think that's what he was trying to say a few chapters later. He's still on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus says, I want you to understand what it cost to follow me. Because doesn't everyone decide what it costs before they spend? Unless you're Congress. Look at Luke 14 with me. And three times he's going to use the same expression. Notice it with me. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says there is... There is a cost to following me. Let's get real tangible now. What does it mean? It means, number one, you've got to put Christ before personal relationships. When Jesus set out toward Jerusalem, he did so against the wishes of his family. His mama and his brothers did not want him doing and saying what he was doing and saying. But he went anyway. And many people who have followed him have had to make the same hard choice. I'm still convicted every time I read the story about the missionary who said at one of the services on Sunday, a young teenage girl came to be baptized carrying a suitcase. He didn't understand the impact until the service was over when he realized 
She had the suitcase with her because she couldn't go home. She understood, if I accept Christ, I lose my family. And Jesus says, if you do not hate your father and mother, your wife and kids, your brothers and sisters, you can't be my disciple. Now, I'm trying to wrap my mind around that because I know the Bible tells me to love my family. You'll notice here on the stand, I've pulled some things that are right out of my office. Things that represent some of the very struggles that Jesus discusses. I've got this picture here that I put in a spot where I see it a hundred times a day of my family. Aren't I supposed to love my family? What do you mean? Hate my family. Well, what we do is we say, well, it doesn't really mean hate. It means love less. Well, Jesus could have said love less. He didn't. Let me illustrate it this way. Suppose a woman approached me and said, Rick, I'm attracted to you. I would like to be your lover. I'm not asking you to divorce your wife. I'm not asking you to spend most of your time with me. If you would just give me some of your time and affection, I'll be content. How do you think my wife would feel if I approached her with this proposal? If I said, Jamie, please understand, I want to stay married to you. I will love her less than you. See, I think my wife would want me to hate any relationship that diminished the affection that's supposed to go only to her. And that's what Jesus is saying. Your family doesn't belong here. This is hard to hear, isn't it? I think Jesus meant for it to be hard to hear. But the amazing thing is when you walk this way, it becomes liberating. Because suddenly you're living for an audience of one and you are delivered from what we all wish we could be delivered from. The temptation to be people pleasers. Spending our lives seeing how many unhappy people we can keep happy. So it's liberating to just live for Christ. But here's the other thing. It is relationally rewarding. I won't use myself as an example. I'll use my wife. She's been married to me for over 28 years. And it hasn't been easy because like most men, I score very high on the Claude factor. But in 28 years, I have never lost one moment's sleep wondering, would she leave me? Would she cheat on me? Would she ever say one day, I give up, I'm tired of you? You know why? My wife loves Christ more than she loves me. I'm not a marriage counselor, but I'm going to give all you single guys the best piece of wisdom you're ever going to get. You want to have a great marriage. You find a girl that loves Jesus more than she loves you. 
Because the amazing irony is, when I die to my family, I'm actually able to live for them better. This is non-negotiable with Jesus. You can't put family here. I come before personal relationships. And then he says, I come before personal ambitions. This is my diploma from Abilene Christian University. It hangs on a wall in my office. may not be a big deal to you, but it was to my family. I was only the second person on either side of my family to ever even go to a college. When I graduated, grandparents showed up, aunts and uncles were proud. I was proud. In fact, I've even got another piece of paper in my office that says I got another degree. Is it wrong to have the ambition to be educated? Maybe your ambition is to have a strong career or to build a business or or to really excel at sports or to really thrive in the arts. And then Jesus says, anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me can't be my disciple. I think it's hard for us to get the notion of that because we have never seen anybody carry a cross. But Jesus' original hearers had and here's what they knew if you see somebody carrying a cross you better take a good look at them because you're never going to see them again ever they are making a one-way trip today we use the phrase that's just my cross to carry in ways i don't think jesus meant well you know i was born with asthma that's just my cross to bear I have a learning disability. I just grew up in deep poverty, but this has just been my cross to bear. I am not making light of those trials. But do you realize you can not know Jesus? In fact, you can hate Jesus and have to deal with a handicap or poverty. Those aren't crosses. A cross is not a trial that could happen to anybody. A cross is a specific suffering that you chose because you're following Christ. It's a sacrifice you're making in your life that you wouldn't have chosen except you believe Christ is first. See, here's the deal. We want to come to Jesus and say, hey, look, Jesus, here's the plans for my life. Here are all the things I want to accomplish and do. And would you sign your name at the bottom because I would like to do them in your name. And Jesus says, no, this is how it works. You sign your name at the bottom of a blank page. And I'll fill it in. There's a difference between pursuing Christ and asking Christ to endorse my pursuits. Jesus said, this is non-negotiable. I come before personal relationships, personal ambitions. One more thing, personal possessions. I have a lot of neat possessions in my office and in my home. This is just one I chose. It's just a little bitty clock, but it's special to me. It was made for me by Byron Nelson. I know some of you have 
something similar. So it'll always be precious to me. I got a lot of stuff. Probably a lot more than I need. I like my stuff. And then Jesus says, Any one of you who does not give up everything cannot be my disciple. And I think one of the things that keeps us from picking up our crosses is all the baggage we're carrying. It's not that Jesus said it's wrong to own stuff. But stuff winds up owning us. And we put it here. I think the issue of discipleship is totally dependent on resolving the issue of ownership. Who owns our stuff? Following Jesus means it all goes at His disposal. Notice, He did not say... You have to give away everything to be a disciple. He said you have to give it up. You have to say, here it is, Jesus. My house is yours. If you need someone else to stay there, let me know. The car I ride in is yours. Does someone else need a ride? Let me know. The clothes I wear are yours. Does someone else need some clothes? Just let me know. There was an old hymnal that had this song called Jesus Demands My All. And the melody was pretty difficult. And so they had an asterisk by it. And at the bottom it said, for an easier version, see song 365. And Jesus comes along and says, I demand your all. And we've been saying for years, You got an easier version? And he shakes his head. Because he knew the cost. He knew the cost because he was about to pay it. You see, I think he deliberately chose the metaphor of building a tower or going to war because he was going to Jerusalem to launch a war against the gates of hell. And to build a movement that was going to reach the world. He knew what it was going to cost. And he said, follow me. Is it worth it? I guess it depends on whether or not you think Jesus is worth it. And Jesus said, here's the deal. You can't plow a good row if you're always looking back. And you can't follow me if you're always second-guessing if I'm worth it. The cost of following is great. But I would contend the cost of not following is greater. The cost we are paying with mediocre living because we want to accept Jesus and not follow Him is far greater. You look back at the major messes of your life and you will admit, I got things out of order.
And so I'm going to ask you a question. What's the most difficult thing for you to surrender to Christ? See, here's what I've learned about us and about me. If you ask us, what's the most important thing in your life? We're going to say Jesus. So I've learned to ask, so what's the second most important thing in your life? Because what you say is second is probably what you're struggling to keep off the first podium. We got to name idolatry if we're going to reject it. It's probably a good thing. But it wasn't meant to be primary. Luciano Pavarotti was one of the great voices of our generation. He died a couple of years ago. He grew up in Italy. His father was a baker and he recognized early in life that he was a brilliant, brilliant singer. And so he gave him voice lessons, but he also sent him to college to learn to be a teacher. And when he graduated from college, he said to his father, well, what should I do? Should I be a singer or should I be a teacher? Now, his father didn't give him an answer, but he gave him wisdom. He said, Luciano, a man cannot live his life trying to sit between two chairs. He'll just fall. You've got to pick one chair and sit only in it. He picked music. It wasn't easy. Spent seven more years before he ever had a professional performance. Another seven years before he ever sang at the Metropolitan Opera. And people would say, yeah, you had a great career because you were so gifted. He would say, no, I had a great career. Because I picked one chair. And I gave everything to it. There's just one throne. Just one throne. And you can only put one person or thing on it. Just one can be first. You can't follow Jesus. You can accept Him. But you can't follow Him until you've decided what the one thing is going to be. Would you bow your heads? And I'm just going to ask you right now to ask the Holy Spirit to help you identify what you struggle with most in putting Christ first.
I just want to share one more thought. God loves you so much. He's not afraid to discipline you. If your hands are held tightly clutching onto what is your idol, he's not afraid to open them, even if it hurts. You see, God loves first by taking seconds away. I had several conversations last night with people that were weeping as they confessed what God had to do to pull idols out of their hands. Maybe that's where you are right now. God disciplines those he loves. And if that's what God is doing in your life right now, embrace it. And then embrace the cross and follow Jesus. And we're going to sing a song now with a special invitation. You begin following Jesus by literally, publicly tangibly dying. We call it baptism. And some of you need to make that step today. So you can come down and let us know of your desire while we stand up and sing this song.